Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Our show today focuses on the extraordinary, perhaps unprecedented role of the U.S. government in the Chrysler and soon-to-come GM bankruptcies. Fresh from the new role of running the banking industry, occasioned by the financial markets meltdown last fall, the incoming Obama administration set up a task force to broker a restructuring plan for the troubled auto industry. Chrysler received some $4 billion in TARP funds in January to provide time to work on a deal with Italian carmaker Fiat, ultimately filing for Chapter 11 in New York on April 30. The government blessed the Fiat alliance, ousted the incumbent management, and brokered a deal where the Treasury would provide $4.5 billion taxpayer dollars as a kind of dip loan along with an additional $6 billion to start up a new Chrysler if a sale to Fiat is approved by the bankruptcy court. The labor union interests would get a 55% share in the new entity. Fiat would receive a healthy chunk to essentially manage the new company. Minor stakes would go to the U.S. and Canadian governments, while secured creditors would get about $0.30 on the dollar, a kind of 363 sale without a real buyer all because of the view held by those in power that a traditional Chapter 11 wouldn't work here, that it would take too long, be too messy, and yield unpredictable results. Many others weighed in at ABI's town hall in favor of an early Chapter 11 filing, but will perhaps never know if the results would have been any different. Since then, some capital market players are grumbling about confidence in their future commitments, especially where the government is concerned, and some former secured creditors are screaming about sham sales, abrogation of the absolute priority rule, and the muscling of investors who were forced to conclude that the political cost of their institutions of asserting a fiduciary duty to their clients was perhaps too high a price to bear. And they may have been right, especially once the president publicly calls you a greedy speculator. But otherwise, complaints from the bankruptcy and restructuring community have been fairly muted. With me to talk about these developments are three of the nation's leading bankruptcy scholars who've spoken up on these issues and their implications for bankruptcy law and policy. They are Mark Rowe, the David Berg Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where he teaches corporate reorganization and bankruptcy. David Skeel is the S. Samuel Arst Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He testified before the House Judiciary Committee on the Automaker Bankruptcies on May 21st. And Todd Zawicki, the George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law at George Mason University School of Law. Welcome to you all, and thanks for sharing your views today. Most bankruptcy professionals I've spoken with, even one sympathetic to the Obama presidency realized that the government's engineering of the Chrysler bankruptcy is at least somewhat troubling and contrary uh, to law. For example, more than 80% in a just-concluded online ABI poll viewed the government's actions here as a bit over the top. 
But just as bad facts make bad law, perhaps the ugly reality of this crisis here means the end justifies the means. And what looks like an equity receivership from the bad old days becomes a creative and fast solution for an administration very concerned with both the optics of the need for a fast resolution and satisfying an important political constituency. So let me start by asking if we're all comfortable with uh, sub rosa plans and less than due process when it's necessary. Todd, I know you're shy on this. Uh, well, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for organizing this, Sam. Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, really uh, unprecedented um, action, no doubt about it. And um, the the precedence that this set uh, um, really is uh, uh, quite alarming. Um, it's alarming in two possible ways. One would be that there is no precedent, in which case what we've seen is what looks like just an ad hoc, uh, politically motivated. Um, Wading in to a bankruptcy uh, case uh, with, uh, and just sort of taking money from one group of uh, legitimate uh, investors and giving it to another. Alternatively, perhaps uh, it is a precedent, in which case um, it's hard to see how this is going to uh, uh, help us stabilize uh, credit markets uh, and get the economy uh, going again. Uh, does this auger um, potential interventions uh, by the government in other cases where uh, politically powerful groups might be involved or where the government believes that the bankruptcy process won't work? I think the more general point here is is that the there was a claim that a typical Chapter 11 case couldn't work uh, for these uh, cases, that they had to be rammed through. And I just don't think that case has been made. Uh, I just don't think it's been established that uh, we needed to cut corners the way the corners are being cut in these cases. David, you were at the sale hearing uh, today in New York as we're uh, recording this. What do you think? Well, I, I only heard uh, a couple hours of the hearing, so I don't know what the final answer is, although the, the trajectory of the hearing looks like it's going where everybody expects, which is to an approval of the sale. Um, I, I'm very uncomfortable for somewhat similar reasons with the way this has been handled. And just, just to uh, pick up on a theme that, that – uh, Todd didn't mention specifically, a big part of the argument for structuring the sale this way is that the world would come to an end, the Chrysler would go straight into liquidation if we didn't have an immediate sale. So the big, uh, the big point that was made at the outset was we absolutely need speed here. And it, it seems to me that it's not at all clear that's true. In fact, I uh, strongly suspect it's not. And that if we had allowed the normal bankruptcy process to go forward, possibly with the 363 sale, but with, a, with more time and with a more of a serious effort to see if there are other bidders out there, I think uh, there would be much less damage to the bankruptcy process. So let me, let me add, this is Mark Rowe. Um, I'm uh, troubled by this. I'm probably not as alarmed as as, as you guys, but let me. But the, the troubling may overlap substantially with where you're with where you're alarmed. Um, and I'm focusing mostly on bankruptcy, not on the question of big, the the big political economy question is 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 the government going to be involved in uh, in bailing out lots of troubled companies? So focusing on the the bankruptcy question, 363. Um, this sure looks like a sub rosa plan. Um, the it, 
de facto, the creditors have approved one way or another the the uh, the plan by substantially not opposing it, maybe with some some uh, maybe influence not to do that. But the the problem with the 363 sale is you don't really need a credit creditor approval for the for the sale. So once the structure is in place, um, there's some risk that, and it's not a trivial risk, that um, the next time this comes up, um, uh, a coalition of creditors will be able to engineer uh, a sale in a way that, uh, that, uh, that uh, disrupts priorities uh, in, a, in a different way. Um, and that's that's the problem problem I see going forward. That this this does look like a this is a sub rosa plan of reorganization. Uh, we didn't really have uh, a, a true bidding process to see whether uh, Chrysler's plans could be bid away at a at a higher at a higher price. Odd thing about this is there's a good chance that um, that if the players structuring this were really uh, really wanted to avoid damage to 363 uh, law. They, they probably could have structured this uh, in a way that would um, that would avoid it. So the reason this is working the way it it is is that the government is flooding money into Chrysler um, that an ordinary dip lender just wouldn't put in. I mean, there's a lot of talk that that the government won't be paid back uh, right. the full amount of their loan, and the consequence is that money that Chrysler is putting in is is spilling over to the other players. If the money that's spilling over to the UAW is only coming from the dip loans and the money that's that that the government is putting in, there probably was a way. There surely was a way to structure this uh, this deal so that it would be clear that the um, the uh, what looks like a violation of priority is say the government buying up. Um, the uh, the uh, um, the the claims from the UAW retirees, and then we find out that the liquidation value of the secured creditors' security is o- is only two billion dollars. Um, the problem is we can't find that out from the structure of the plan, and so it's plausible for people to look at this plan and say, you know, these creditors. Maybe it's a two billion dollar liquidation claim. Maybe it's a three billion dollar liquidation claim. Maybe Jeep could have pulled in uh, two billion dollars if sold, and uh, another few hundred million dollars from uh, from other assets. Uh, even Chrysler's own valuation showed a range of liquidation values uh, centered on two billion, but with an upper end above two billion. Um, and it, we had time so that. Uh, that could have been a little bit more of a of a market test. Um, so you know the, the the two two prongs in 363. Do we have an emergency sale? Um, do we need an emergency that requires an immediate sale? Um, and are we violating? Um, uh, are we are we ousting? Uh, determining the ter- the terms of the reorganization under 1129. In terms of did we have to sell now? With Chrysler's plant shut down until August. There's a case to be made that uh, the, the reorganization had to be done quickly, but it didn't have to be done quickly in terms of weeks. Uh, it had to be done quickly in terms of in terms of months. And taking taking a, a few extra days or a few extra weeks to see if there was a a purchaser for more than two billion dollars, so people could see whether this was a um, this really was a violation of priorities, uh, uh, could have been accomplished. My explanation by for for why this some of what's ha- what's happening is um, is 
when you put deal makers um, and give them a lot of muscle from having government money and government structure behind them, um, it's uh, it's kind of an authority that we usually don't get in a reorganization. And all of a sudden, you find yourself a lot more muscular than you used to be when you have the government's muscle muscle behind us. Um, And so it's, it's... if, the, if somebody from the government, from the Treasury, just calls up and asks, um, most people want to go along if it seems, if it seems plausible. Um, and uh, when the government has a lot of money behind them and isn't really making a commercial, commercial judgment, this can make a plan move in ways that can be disruptive. Isn't that a bit of the the government's play here, almost an example of taking a page from the hedge fund playbook? where the, the sole willing lender, albeit here with taxpayer money rather than private mm-hmm. money, uh, extracts massive concessions from everybody else. I, I think it is. This is David uh, again. I, one of the things that strikes me about the Chrysler and GM plans is that the government is acting, I wouldn't say so much a hedge fund, but acting very much like a dip lender. <laughs> they're, they're doing the sorts of things that dip lenders have done over the past uh, 10 or 15 years in bankruptcy. They're keeping the debtor on a short leash. They're giving them a, a narrow range of options. All of that is, is, in some respects, in my view, appropriate. What's worrisome is that they're, they're making their decisions based on a political calculus, and, um, and that's why we get some of the things that we see, which, which look like uh, uh, violations of absolute priority, among other things. And Todd here, I, uh, if I could just add, I mean, it strikes me there are uh, – that the, the two cases are similar in the sense that, uh, that, that there's politics mixed in with uh, uh, the question of testing the financial viability of the institutions. But the politics are different and the political concerns are different. In Chrysler, what we see is um, the question about whether or not Chrysler is worth more alive than dead. Um, and generally, absolute priority helps us to make that determination, uh, which is that we don't just subsidize um, junior creditors out of the pockets of, uh, of, of senior creditors. And as Mark well uh, uh, said, we don't know whether that's going on here or not. So we don't know about sort of the threshold uh, um, question about what Chrysler should look at look like because of the political intervention. In General Motors, what we're seeing, I think, is in many ways a, a much more, in, in some ways, a, a more troubling political intervention, not so much from the perspective of, of bankruptcy, but the, percent of the um, perspective of the economy at large, uh, which is to say that we're really kind of creating a little bit of a monster here in uh, General Motors like we've never really seen before, a, uh, a partnership between the government and the, the UAW. Uh, to run a uh, to run a company, and it's um, it's not really clear. You know, is that is that a recipe for General Motors' prosperity five or ten years ago, uh, five or ten years from now, to have that sort of ownership structure and the kind of incentives that are set up by that? Um, and so, 
to the extent that bankruptcy is uh, um, being used as a vehicle to turn General Motors from what is essentially an economic entity into a political entity, um, that, um, that raises real concerns about um, whether or not bankruptcy is going to accomplish its objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, I think both of these firms could benefit, should benefit from a, a a rational bankruptcy process that would allow them to rationalize their distribution systems, to get rid of old lines, to rewrite labor contracts, to do all the things they need to do. Um, and I was optimistic when they went into bankruptcy that they would be able to set aside a lot of those political calculations. And instead, what we've ended up with is sort of this uh, um, this hybrid of a bankruptcy process and a political process, uh, which we can keep our fingers crossed that that'll improve on the traditional bankruptcy process. But I'm certainly not optimistic that that's uh, where we're headed right now. Uh, this is Mark Rogan. You know, I wonder whether the Treasury had, on, on the narrower issue of priorities, I'm wondering from, from some of the reports about the, the, the emerging shape of the GM bankruptcy, expected bankruptcy, whether they had some second thoughts about what happened in Chrysler, and that the reports in the last day or two suggest that the plan uh, will likely pay back the secured creditors in full, Right. Perhaps immediately, perhaps in, perhaps in cash. Um, it could be that some of the people in the Treasury uh, came to a conclusion that the Chrysler plan disrupted thinking in capital markets, um, either because it's believed that priority was uh, um, uh, not followed or that we just couldn't, couldn't tell, which is, I guess, my perspective on this. Uh, and they may have concluded that we've got to move the, ba- move the needle back and at least take one creditor group to secure creditors and pay them off in full uh, in hopes that that, uh, that confidence among potential secured lenders uh, recovers. Is, is, um, is a good business uh, reason so as to violate the absolute priority rule found in uh, just general uh, exigent circumstances of, of an emergency? This is this is David. Uh, I, I don't think so. And one of the things that's that's very striking about these cases to me is, in the past, where we had exigent circumstances and where the government stepped in, they've always done it outside of the bankruptcy process. The, the first round with Chrysler was a, a workout restructuring bailout that took place outside of, of of bankruptcy. The other bailouts have had that form as well. I find it very worrisome when the two things are combined, where what is in effect a bailout is done on the back of the bankruptcy process without really paying attention to the, the rules of the bankruptcy process. And, and it, it's just not obvious to me that emergency circumstances are a justification. We, uh, I think um, Mark mentioned the issue of uh, where the uh, values may be uh, and even um, there's a new report out from Chrysler's uh, financial advisor showing that the the value may have dropped since the beginning of the year, and a, a new liquidation analysis showing the secure creditor recovery would you know be, be even less, uh, perhaps less than the payoff that's now projected to the secureds under under the deal. So. Uh, is it perhaps 
not a violation of the absolute priority rule if you can't show that Chrysler's assets are worth more than $2 billion. Well, what, this is Mark again. Uh, if, if we were operating in 1129, valuation hearings are, uh, are very dicey. Everybody comes in with, uh, with a valuation that's remarkably close to the best uh, plausible <laughs> position for, them for, for, uh, for their financial structure. But the, the problem is, is we're only seeing Chrysler's variations. If we were in 1129 instead of 363 um, and the secured creditors weren't shy about it, they could come in before the judge and try to make the plausible case that, okay, you guys think it's no more than $2 billion and maybe even it's declining. We'd like to show you that it's, uh, that it's, it's $3.5 billion. Um, and if the judge thinks it's plausible, that's that's the number that uh, that would have to be put on under 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 a seven. Uh, the the problem is with a 363 sale, the secured creditors don't get that shot. Um, if they got that shot, they might have lost, but they're, they're not getting that shot at uh, at, at showing that uh, Chrysler's valuation is too low. And they're not even getting the shot of of you know going to shopping the company and trying to find whether there's another creditor, whether there's another buyer out there who's prepared to, uh, prepared to, pay, the, uh, prepared to pay more than $2 billion. Todd raised the uh, comparison with General Motors. Uh, do, uh, do the others think that this same model uh, is likely to be tried? And, and if so, will it work in a GM bankruptcy? This is David. My my response is similar to Mark's from from a moment or two ago. Um, Mark suggested that it, it may be the government had second thoughts about Chrysler and tried to put together something that looked a little more consistent with the priority rules in GM. However they got there, they seem to me to have gotten there. I, I suspect one could worry about the priorities in the GM plan, but it's, it's not the same kind of naked violation of absolute priority that, that we see in Chrysler. And, and so one of the, the odd things about GM to me is that it, it may be that from from a bankruptcy perspective, it's less worrisome. It's possible that it also, from a best running of the company, it's it's more worrisome because of the fact the government's going to be a 70% owner. But um, from a bankruptcy perspective, it, it's not as, as nakedly problematic as the Chrysler deal. I agree with I, I agree with David on. Um on, on that point, uh, completely, and uh, and in many ways, you know, they, they're they're very different companies because there was a, a general perception that Chrysler just wasn't going to be able to make it as a standalone entity um, to be reorganized in a traditional Chapter 11 sort of way, where um, and so then they were sort of choosing between these options of a sale or a liquidation or uh, or some sort of uh, new business model, where that's never really been the question about general. Motors has been pretty clear that there is uh, the General Motors can be reorganized. How you finance that, how you how you work it, um, is uh, another question. But sort of the general direction of the cases and the kind of issues they raise um, are, in many ways, very very different because of the uh, underlying economic structure of the two firms. The, the the creditor issue in General Motors looks like uh, it will involve the bondholders as opposed to the uh, to the secured creditors. 
and there it might be more, probably more an unfair discrimination issue um, than, right. a, than an absolute priority issue. Um, yet, and we have yet to see how that's going to play out. But if, if there's, if we're looking for a place where there, there's going to be some tension vis-a-vis uh, -vis financial creditors, that's the likely spot right now. Do you guys have any prediction on how court might look at um, the unfair discrimination question as, the, uh, as General Motors has currently contemplated uh, the payouts? I don't. This is David. I don't have a real prediction. It's just another one of those issues on which the posture strikes me as very unusual. That would be an obvious thing to sort out at the plan confirmation stage under 1129. Um, but it's a lot more complicated when you're trying to deal with it as part of a 363 sale and um, determining what aspects of the new entity and the new entity structure are relevant to the decision whether to let the, um, let the sale go through is, is much more complicated, much less obvious than a straight-up plan confirmation um, analysis, which, which to me is another reason why it would make much more sense to put this through the normal Chapter 11 process. 1114 11, complicates this also in that there we've got several unsecured creditors, 1114 gives the um, retirees uh, a boost in that the cash payments are supposed to be made uh, um, during the course of the reorganization unless their representative agrees, agrees not to. And that, would, that makes determining what's happening in terms of, uh, in terms of what the uh, true entitlements are uh, harder than it would otherwise be. Let me ask a, uh, uh, a question about the future, perhaps, um, in terms of the effect on uh, lending practices from the government's uh, maneuverings here. Uh, can you uh, speculate on how capital markets uh, and lenders generally would view uh, this uh, strategy where the government is setting a precedent for how they're going to uh, uh, behave in a more uh, sort of muscular fashion where where government money is is in play in a in either an industry or a market that is deemed too big to fail sure uh, this is mark uh, again I mean, you can see uh, uh, lots of capital markets players saying they're troubled by this, um, that priority seems to be violated, um, and several have said publicly that they're going to take into, this into account when they lend to either unionized firms or firms that are likely to, to uh, attract government attention. Now, they're saying that, and that doesn't mean they'll actually do that. Uh, and part of it depends on what happens, I think, with, with the GM. If, if, if their sense is that Chrysler okay, maybe things didn't go exactly the way we want in Chrysler, but you know, maybe we'll just treat this like uh, the, the factory burning down and somebody forgot to get the insurance. One off, we've got a problem, but we can just keep going, keep going on. Um, if, if this doesn't get repeated, um, uh, creditors will come back and probably uh, memory is short, and, and people will come back in 2010 and, and maybe not even put this into their calculation. 
if it gets repeated in GM and, be, and is seen as visible in GM, um, and if it gets repeated in, uh, in some other bankruptcies where uh, some players say, look at the precedent from 363, we really don't have to, the 363 sale in Chrysler and GM, we really don't have to pay too much attention to priority. Um, it could disrupt credit markets in a way that's, uh, that's, that's not a good trend. Um, if that happens, there'll be pressure to, to fix things up later, either with new legislation. You know, if the economy comes out of the recession in 2010 and the economy looks good, and these things, these kinds of pressures don't seem like they're uh, they're immediate, people will forget and go about their business uh, as as they used to. Um, if it doesn't. Um, we have a problem. Whether we have a big problem or a little problem, we, we probably have a problem. Todd here. Uh, uh, one of the things that's striking about Chrysler is that, in the end, um, these hedge funds and investors ended up folding. Um, that, I think, is an, is an interesting uh, dynamic in itself, that, uh, um, that under the political pressure, they finally decided to, uh, to wilt. So, what, what does that mean? Well, I mean, one possibility is is that uh, um, that there will still be uh, investors who are willing to play this game, but there will only be the ones who make the decision ahead of time that they're willing to stand up to the political heat. Um, so that that's one possibility. One possibility might be that this is just a, a one-off action. But what we do see now uh, in these cases, as well as in the banking sector uh, generally, is a degree of political risk that we've never really seen before in American uh, uh, economics, at least since the uh, since the New Deal. And I think that there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out um, what uh, you know wh where where does this all lead. What are the industries that are impacted by this? Because in many ways, this can't just be carved off. The idea of political risk can't just be carved off into General Motors and Chrysler. But we do see the same sort of activities in the banking sector, investors in the banking sector, um, and that, that sort of thing. The second thing to, I think, take away from this, and, I, and, and David and Mark have both said it, but I'll uh, uh, reiterate it, is that the uh, the attack on secured creditors in Chrysler is in many ways a, a unique um, and um, uh, intervention, uh, which is to say that one of the things that has come out is a lot of those secured creditors are ordinary, you know, are, are pension funds, they're other sort of uh, retirees and people like that who were buying secured bonds specifically because they were, were not risky. And I think that there's some public recognition that they weren't speculators in some sense. Uh, if they were speculators, they would have been buying, you know, junk bonds and, uh, uh, and uh, dot-com stocks. And so I think that in terms of what the political optics um, look like on that and whether there might be people who down the road might figure that they might be able to stand up a little more to uh, to political pressure. Perhaps uh, as the story comes out more, perhaps that creates a dynamic in the future where uh, if what is needed is for parties to agree voluntarily, maybe they're not as willing to go along with that. And in fact, it probably came as somewhat of a uh, surprise to the administration that the bondholders and General Motors seem like they are holding the line, and they are going to force General Motors into bankruptcy rather than taking uh, what, they're, what they're given. So perhaps there is a... Uh, um, 
an, an adjustment at work there uh, that uh, um, getting the voluntary consent in the future in a case like this perhaps may not be uh, as easy as it turned out to be in Chrysler. So I have, this is David. I have a question for Todd or, or Mark. You could answer this too from from your comments about the senior lenders caving in Chrysler. Why do you think they caved? What exactly was the political threat that they gave into? And, and the reason that I ask this is we don't ordinarily think of hedge funds as being thin-skinned and and subject to pressure. So so what is it that caused them to cave? Great question. This is this is Todd. I've I've wondered the same thing. Um, uh, it seems unlikely that just the denunciations um, uh, were enough to uh, you know public denunciations were enough to get them to uh, to cave under. One thing that 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 people have wondered about um, is whether there was a mailed fist behind uh, behind all that, and and it was sort of ironic timing that the same week all this was coming out was when there was the release under the Freedom of Information Act of some of the talking points and some of the memos related to Secretary Paulson's meetings with the banks back in the fall, um, where uh, various banks were strong-armed into taking uh, TARP funds, uh, even though they were reluctant or said they didn't want to take it. And it looks very much uh, like at that time that there were some real threats of uh, potentially the government using its regulatory power uh, to uh, um, to you know use more than just um, you know jawboning, but actually perhaps to use the regulatory power in a uh, um, in a sort of threatening sort of way. Were those sorts of threats made here? I, I, I don't know. But um, but there but it, it does it seem implausible to me? Not necessarily, especially after sort of seeing what uh, what happened with the uh, implement, implementation of the TARP program and how it was uh, sold to um, to banks that uh, were reluctant to take the money. Yeah, I can only speculate. I just see what you know we read in the uh, in the in the Wall Street Journal and uh, and and elsewhere. Um, there are several different. Rifts you can you can look at on this. You could imagine, I can imagine some of these guys, even if there weren't the mailed fist that that uh, that Todd mentions could have been in, could in play. Some of them may have just concluded we're not the full 6.9 billion. We're only taking down whatever their number is, 100 million. Um, we litigate this, and maybe we demonstrate that we should get three instead of two. Um, it's not worth it. To, yeah. For that, because we've only got a, a small portion, um, there's some possibility that even if there's nobody threatening a punch right now, uh, hedge funds aren't particularly popular in the United States Congress right now, and this might be the kind of thing that will tip over further to to regulation that the hedge fund doesn't want to uh, uh, doesn't want to put up with, uh, and that could have been what's in what's in play. There's some some odd things because. It may not. There may be no appeal, um, depending on what happens with the, the, the Indiana people. We may not get as strong a precedent as we would otherwise. We have a deal that it looks like nobody's going to going to contest. That, that's not going to be contested as, uh, as as severely as it could be as it could have been uh, could have been contested. <laughs> David, do you have any uh, sense of what was going on? I, I don't. It's very surprising to me um, because I, 
I do suspect maybe it has something to do with the, the general environment for hedge funds and the fear of regulation, but it's hard to imagine that one or two hedge funds are going to be worried about industry-wide regulation. So I, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if, if they, will, they were afraid of being shamed in a way that would affect their ability to attract investors, that maybe some people that would potentially invest in a hedge fund would have second thoughts if the president has called out that hedge fund by name. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It was very puzzling because hedge funds are really the last people that you would expect to cave uh, under public pressure because they, they pride themselves on on being tough and being willing to fight a fight that other people aren't willing to fight. Mm-hmm. And there was this unusual but, aspect to the to the whole political dynamics of it, which is that, uh, as Mark had mentioned, there was so much money there that was staked by the, the banks that had taken TARP funds, um, and they just rolled over immediately. And uh, so it may be that their political position of the hedge funds was somewhat more untenable by the fact that uh, all the uh, all the TARP banks um, that held most of the money um, rolled over, sort of leaving these guys out there all by themselves, and maybe they just decided that would be um, too difficult of a position to maintain or something. And, and just to pick up on what both you and Mark said, that it, the game wouldn't be worth the candle. If, if it's only uh, a few million dollars that's at stake, maybe you conclude it's just not worth it at this point. They were clearly on an island. There's something a little peculiar on the Treasury. This is maybe not bankruptcy and maybe isn't, isn't, isn't the topic for us. There seems to be something peculiar about uh, the possibility of strong-arming the TARP lenders, which were about 70% of the secured loans. Is that on, on one side of the Treasury, we're pouring money into the TARP <laughs> lenders, and now on the bankruptcy side, uh, we're being tough with these guys and saying it's $2, million, we've done our, $2 billion, we've done our valuation, and it's no more than $2 billion, while on the other side, where, you know, how much money do you need today? <laughs> it, it, yeah, it on, on something we were talking about earlier, about uh, potential impact on capital markets, there are several ways which there are several other ways where this could have a pernicious pernicious effect on capital markets in that you could imagine some lenders saying we're not going to fight uh, if the government uh, decides that uh, that they're going to bail out and they're going to roll over us we will be rolled over but we're going to calculate this is going to go into our the interest rate the risk that we assess in making this making this loan so th- there there's a potential for a negative impact on the very class of companies that the government is trying to bail out here in that you could imagine lenders uh, tomorrow, if they think it's Chrysler, GM, and more, um, lending to the more and say, look, uh, we do face this political risk. Uh, We're not going to fight, or if we fight, it's going to be costly, or we're going to lose anyway. So we have to charge a little bit more to account for the additional risk. And in the marginal loan, we're just not going to make that marginal loan. So we'll get a little bit more credit rationing and a little bit higher price. So the class of companies, weaker companies, uh, weaker companies where there's some more social policy at stake from the government's perspective, uh, could end up having more trouble in capital markets. Uh, And if it turns, it's probably not going to turn Western European style as it was in Western Europe in the 70s and 80s. But there's at least a little bit of a risk here is that 
you'll, that this will actually then increase pressure on the government to lend more because capital markets players may look at the company and say it's marginal, but we could make the loan, um, but not if there's political risk or if there's political risk, we've got to charge another 6% or 3% uh, enough so that the loan isn't viable. And that then could induce the government to uh, be more willing to make the loan and the, the, the prop up because it looks like a plausibly viable company that just can't make it in capital markets. But it can't I, make I, it in capital markets because I, of the political risk. Uh, Todd, here, I, I share that risk. I mean, or that that that, that concern that it that it does run the potential of sort of creating this sort of self-reinforcing or downward spiral, which is that the government lends here because of the problems in the cap uh, in the credit markets means nobody else will provide the dip lending. But if they add uncertainty to the process, then in future cases, as you're saying, it may be that a viable company can't get credit, and so then the government steps in, and so you could have this. Uh, this this cycle of uh, of the government um, having to basically be step in in uh, in, in more cases uh, um, and asserting you know and once they become the dip lender then it runs potential for uh, as, as David was saying for them to really act like a typical dip lender in these cases. Good thing there's an unlimited supply of taxpayer money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we laugh now. <laughs> Well, thank you all. Well, I guess we'll soon see, or maybe not so soon see, whether Chrysler is a one-off, as was described earlier, or a trend that requires either Congress down the road or maybe some courageous court in a particular case to step in and enforce the traditional rules of the bankruptcy road. I guess we'll see. Uh, I do want to thank our, our guests today, Mark Rowe, David Skeel, and Todd Zawicki for sharing their thoughts, and we thank our audience for listening. There are more than 60 podcast recordings archived on our website at abiworld.org. And so until next time, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.